morning, everyone. Welcome. I'm Jeff Liebenson of Liebenson Law in New York City, and I'm president of the International Association of Entertainment Lawyers, which is presenting today's San Francisco Music Tech panel here. The IAEL has 300 entertainment lawyers around the world in many of the key markets who are all involved in international licensing, the topic that we'll discuss today. As our industry becomes more complex and we become more and more involved with cross-border activity, global distribution platforms, the IAEL plays a key role in bringing together legal expertise from various markets. When I was head of international legal and business affairs for BMG, I learned how valuable it was to have trusted colleagues in the various markets around the world. And now that I'm in private practice and clearing rights for various clients, the connections we have in the IAEL are incredibly valuable. So if you're interested in international licensing or perhaps joining the IAEL, please check us out on the website, IAEL.org, or you know, speak with me after the session. The topic that we're addressing today has been in the news a lot, and we're going to focus on the key issues about how digital platforms, artists, and content companies can clear rights beyond the United States and tap the international markets. Each country has its own national copyright law, and the EC in particular has focused on making the process of licensing more international throughout Europe. Traditionally, music publishers and collecting societies administered their rights on a country-by-country -country basis, and when most digital music services operated in a single market, that system worked just fine. But with the advent of multi-territorial services, the desire arose for a one-stop shop for the licensing of digital music rights. There's been a continuing evolution as to what is licensable, how it is licensed, who licenses it, and at what rates. In Europe, the EC's overall goal of harmonizing laws to establish a common market should make Europe the perfect place to develop the multi-territorial law that the global internet calls out for. However, European copyright licensing has been described as chaotic and as a licensing labyrinth. A brief history will illustrate how we got into the current situation. RTL, the European broadcaster, sought a pan-European license from GEMA, the German Author Society, in 2000. GEMA refused to grant an international broadcasting license to RTL for its music, and RTL brought a complaint before the EC. Music Choice brought a similar case against CSAC, and those two cases were consolidated. And in 2009, the EC ruled in favor of RTL and Music Choice. The EC found that permitting each individual society to have the exclusive right to license for its own national territory was anti-competitive. The EC favored an arrangement in which rights owners could authorize a single society to administer the online use of their works across Europe. The ruling prompted the European collection societies to change their membership rules to permit authors greater freedom in their choice of collecting society. Now this was expected to result in the emergence of a few powerful societies that would dominate pan-European licensing. However, as central collection agreements began to emerge, the music publishers took greater control over the management of their rights. First, EMI formed a joint venture with PRS in the UK and with GEMA in Germany called CELUS to establish it as the sole administrator of certain digital rights for EMI's Anglo-American repertoire. And then other major publishers followed with similar arrangements for their Anglo-American repertoire. Since these pan-European arrangements apply to only part of the overall repertoire, that means that platform operators still need to, needed to license local repertoire from the local society in each country of the EU. So the potential advantages of multi-territorial licensing have been undermined by the fragmentation of the global repertoire. And a digital service now needs to engage not only in territorial licensing, but repertoire licensing as well. 
So contrary to the EC's hopes of streamlining the licensing regime, these moves have resulted in even greater complexity. So this summer, the EC issued a proposed directive overhauling collection society practices to encourage greater transparency, efficiency, and accountability, and permitting only those societies that achieve those goals to engage in multi-territorial licensing in a further effort to streamline the licensing process. And there are other issues not only in Europe that we'll address today in other regions of the world. How you view this depends a lot on where you sit. If you're a music publisher, a collection society, an artist, a digital service provider. So before we go on, I just want to get a sense of our audience and, and uh, the perspectives that you all bring. How many people here um, work with a digital service provider? If you could raise your hands. Okay. And uh, I see at least one music publisher in the room. Other music publishers? One's enough. <laughs> do we have artists? And do we have any, uh, anyone from any of the collection societies? And anyone who invests in, uh, in digital services? They won't admit it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll sign an NDA. <laughs> A lot of attorneys interested in the topic. Um, so with that as background, I'm very pleased that we have a very distinguished panel of experts that have been actively involved in these matters and who all approach it from a variety of perspectives. So um, with that, I would ask each of you to briefly introduce yourselves. Okay. I'm Mark Jacobson. I practice law in New York. Um, for many years, I've been doing this. Um, I was the founding chairman of the New York State Bar Section on Entertainment Law. I was general counsel at Prodigy, the online service. I was very active in lobbying and writing the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and testified at WIPO on the Berne Convention Amendment for digital copyrights. Uh, I was the chief operating officer of a company called MyCD.com, which was a precursor to Napster, which offered you, we would license tracks in and we would press and ship you a CD. Um, uh, I don't know. I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Nita Ragawansi. I'm uh, Vice President of Business Development and Legal Affairs for TuneSat. TuneSat is a digital audio fingerprinting technology and service that allows creators and copyright owners of music to see on their own dashboard and their own account in almost real time who's playing their music um, in, in, on TV and on the web in the U.S. and through Western Europe. Um, and hopefully expanding further. Uh, prior to that, um, I was, uh, oh sorry, and also TuneSat is also white label our technology behind a variety of, of apps out there that need a sort of listening technology, a fingerprinting technology um, integrated into whatever their service may be. Um, prior to that, I was at Sound Exchange for approximately eight years as their director of artist label relations, so I'll talk a little bit on that end as well. Hi, my name is Heidi Valcarano, and I'm an associate attorney at LaPolte Law. We are a boutique transactional entertainment law firm based in West Hollywood. We're primarily an artist rep firm, which means we get really hands-on with developing artists and all sorts of creative talent, both in music, film, TV, uh, book publishing, everything across the board. And we um, are primarily focused on building the artist brand as a business. And hi, I'm Charles Caldas. I'm the CEO of a global rights licensing agency called Merlin. Merlin was created in 2007 to address, from the master uh, recording owner's uh, side, the need for greater licensing efficiency on a global basis in the market. Independence had lived in a, work, in a world that was networked on a territory-by-territory -territory basis, and as consumption and distribution of music went from a local and a regional uh, matter to, to a global matter, uh, independent labels were finding it increasingly challenging to, to get the attention of the services that were rolling out globally, and by the same extension, international services rolling out pan-territorially <coughs> were finding it difficult to get to the repertoire that mattered on a territory-by-territory -territory basis. Uh, so that's what we do. Okay, so... <coughs> As a baseline for our discussion, I think it would be very helpful um, to first identify the different types of rights that are involved when you're licensing uh, for digital use around the world. In the US, it's the reproduction and the performance right in both the sound recording, the master, and in the musical composition. 
Um, when you go internationally, uh, Mark, could you explain the rights lay of the land to us? Well, sure. There's several layers. Well, there's, there's several layers within masters, and there's several layers within publishing. So, um, within the master, you need to own the right to distribute a copy of the sound recording, and there are uh, neighboring rights, I guess you'd call them, that relate to uh, rights that the producers and artists might actually have in the sound recording itself, um, no matter how it's distributed, whether digitally or uh, terrestrially. Uh, on the publishing side, um, you, have, you frequently will encounter a mechanical license, which is the right to reproduce the composition embodied in the sound recording on the individual's uh, computer or mobile device. You'll need the right to perform it, which is the right to play the song. And if you happen to have lyrics on the site, you're going to need lyric license rights as well. So that's the basic part. I'm sure I screwed up the master part. I was going to say, with neighboring See? rights, the, the, uh, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the terminology, so just to be clear, it's really the public performance on the master recording. It, um, that buzzword, neighboring rights, is, um, has sort of come up in the international uh, environment as, as sort of the term to really explain public performance of the masters. Um, so when you're kind of looking out there and you're trying to do some research and you're out there Googling it, use the words neighboring rights and you'll see a slew of articles about it as opposed to public performance, sound recording, nothing comes up <laughs> at all. And when you see related rights, that's really the same as neighboring rights? Related rights as in, yeah, when people talk about right when they yeah. use that buzzword, related rights. Think so. Yep, that's neighboring rights as well. Yeah, you see the terms interchangeably. Yeah. So, Charles, um, how do you see the licensing landscape evolving in Europe and elsewhere, and what sort of challenges have you faced at Merlin? Well, I mean, I, I think the the encourage we'll, we'll start with the, the the kind of positive side, which I think on the master recording side, it's getting easier and easier. And one of the things that, that um, we've seen evolve, you know, even in the five years we've been doing it, is really launching a global music service, you know, before Merlin existed was the case of getting the major label licenses, doing licenses with the long tail aggregators and then hoping that you'd kind of covered everything. In reality, once you get out of a particular territory and in the world that we live and, and we operate as much in the US as we do in any other territory around the world, we've got deals in Russia and Ireland and, Bra and Brazil and all sorts of places is domestic markets grow up around domestic infrastructure. So there's domestic distributors, there's domestic labels, there, there's people who are uh, big, and, big and ugly enough within their own markets to run their own business and don't need to, to, to sit inside major label distribution or inside the, the long tail aggregators. So, so really the, the, what, what we did is take, which is you know, interestingly for, for what we do is now the largest basket of rights by value in these services outside of the four major labels is take all of that noise away on a territory by territory basis to these services and allow them to get into business via one transaction very, very quickly. And where we've done that successfully with services like Spotify and Deezer and Audio um, and YouTube and a range of others, it adds a significant amount of value on both sides of the equation. And that's the encouraging th side. I, th I think both, both, both from the service side and from the rights holder side, they've, they've recognised the need for greater efficiency. They've recognised the, the need to put that music in front of consumers far quicker and far more in a far more compelling way. And at least in, in, in in the context of those services I just ran through, it, it's paying dividends for them. So, the you know the, the the frustration we have, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, is that I think the market could be moving more quickly, particularly on the publishing side. We're seeing a lot of innovation being stifled by the complexity of licensing publishing rights. Well, for a for a digital music service to succeed, it needs the rights not just to the major label content, but local content, indie content. Um, in trying to navigate all that, you know, how feasible is it really for an emerging new service? Look, I think with the existing of, of, of what, with the existence of what we do, what the majors do, and what the, what the aggregators do, I think you can start getting to a point where there's a lot of, there's a lot of the key repertoire available to, available to you very, very quickly, and certainly much more easier than it ever has been. But you know, to your point on what makes a music service successful, we we did a fairly comprehensive study going back probably about 15 months now, and we've been meaning to rerun it this year and haven't quite had time. But just looking at 
market by market amongst the labels that we represent within Merlin, how they've performed within their own market in terms of the mainstream chart, which is you know, the, the, the most basic measure of what's attractive to the local consumer. And we found that in, in the period we surveyed, which was up until the end of, I think, March or April 2011, you know, territory by territory, there had been a significant number of, of mainstream chart hits in those territories, and, and it's and it's that kind of repertoire that if you're if you're a digital music service coming into a new market, so let's say you want to launch in the Netherlands or if you want to launch in in Italy, if you're going to flick your switch and expect consumers to come to that site and pay their 10, 10 euros, ten dollars a month, and all of the local repertoire that they're hearing on the radio and seeing on the television and seeing at the clubs is not represented, you're not really going to have much of a chance of getting a foothold in there. And really, I think that the, the value that we've really brought to those partners like, you know, like Spotify and Deezer and Audio is to give them the confidence that when they flick that switch on in that territory, it's not only the major label repertoire and the long tail repertoire, but it's that all-important you know, domestic repertoire that's there that, that's ultimately going to drive the early adopters, is going to get people engaged with your service, is going to spread word of mouth and ultimately lead to, you know, I suppose, the Spotify factor, which is the, the, the company we've seen execute that particular... Uh, that particular aspect of their business the best. You often um, hear comments that it's just too hard to get the necessary licenses. Um, in a world in which in indies are achieving more and more success globally, what is the right balance in your mind between the majors and the indies? Look, I think there's, there's fewer majors <laughs> as of last week, so... Um, uh, and I think the challenge on, on that side is, you know, how much strength and leverage you have within a digital startup to actually be able to resist the influence that those people will try and exert over your business. So I think that's another that's another factor that we've seen leading to failures of music services is that, you know, if you're if you're beholden to to the whims and the the restrictions imposed upon you by the largest rights holders before you even get out of the door, the chances are that the business is going to not be the business that you had in your mind by the time it gets to market. Um, and, and, and then I think it's, it's the consumer. This is the person that, that, that we always tend to forget. Everyone's, fo you know, the, the, the platforms are focused on the technology. We're focused on the music and the value of the rights. But no one's really thinking about, you know, what's, what's going to be really great for this consumer when they put their, you know, their $10 on their credit card and, and get this service for the first time. And it has to be satisfying, satisfying that need. And I think in, 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 in that sense, you know, we, we talk a lot about you know the value of our rights in the digital marketplace and how they you know how they sit in comparison to to, to everyone else's and you know we're, we're starting almost to make an argument that those the right the kind of rights that the labels we represent uh, and the value that they bring to your business are probably more important to the success of your business than Lady Gaga because that you know the, the 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 people who are the most active digital consumers are you know music literate they tech savvy they they're educated they've probably you know grown up in an environment where they have a vast array of music available to them and they consume it if you fail to satisfy that particular need you're not going to you're not going to succeed in the blogosphere you're not going to get tweeted and you're not going to have that that initial hook which is becoming really really you know in a market that's becoming really really competitive and it's a hook that's harder and harder to you know, to, to, to get into that consumer side. Well, a big issue, um, you know, that, that everyone's wondering about is Universal's acquisition of EMI, and so there's one less entity to go to, uh, we think, um, unless they keep operating it separately. Um, how do you see that acquisition bearing on the, the licensing process, and, and is it going to become easier or harder? What will the effect be? Uh, I think numerically it's better, <laughs> just because you've taken one out. I, I think our concern with this has always been, if you give the company that's already the most likely to try and shape their business, shape your business to what they think suits them the best, which is not necessarily what you, suits you best or suits the consumer best, then putting even more power in their hands uh, with, with you know, the, the catalogs that they're going to acquire is not going to be a consumer-friendly outcome, and I don't think it's going to be an investment-friendly outcome. Having said that, you know the, the hope that we have is that the way the, ma the market shapes out, 
is the gap between what essentially essentially now a duopoly in the marketplace between you know Universal and and, and Sony, with with you know Warner way way in, in in third place, is that somehow by virtue of the divestments and by virtue of what happens with with the competition authorities over the next over the next month or two, is that we see some level of balance restored, and I think that that the services that are resisting that that shaping of their businesses succeed more and more. You know, the businesses that we've seen work best in the market are not the ones that have the major labels' hands all through them. You know, and I suppose the two extremes of that example is, you know, if you look at MySpace Music, where the majors took 40% of the commercial aspect of that business and essentially screwed it within a year by just fundamentally misunderstanding who their customer was and what their customer wanted. And you compare that to, to the really music-driven platforms um, that have succeeded on, on their own terms and without that sort of shaping and influence of the majors. You know, if we see more of that, that latter group succeed in the marketplace, then I think we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know, a, a healthier digital environment. Okay, so if we were trying to establish a new digital service and we had obtained all of our master rights from the majors, from the indies, the global as well as the local repertoire, then we turn to publishing. And uh, when we do that, what rights do we have to clear? Who do we have to go to to get those rights? What are the rights? Um, Mark, can you share some of your insights on clearing publishing rights? It's, it's actually cumbersome and difficult, but not complicated. So you, you really have to slog through it, and the issues arise over and over again. Assume you want to launch, um, you want to launch a service in France and you want complete access to uh, the three majors, Merlin's catalog, and everybody else's catalog of masters that you can get your hands on. We'll leave the master clearing aside. To get those rights in France, you need to go to SASEM, which is the French territory for your local repertoire, and for those companies that haven't withdrawn their digital rights and put them in the companies like the one Jeff mentioned before, sell us. And so each of the majors and many independent publishers have done this. So. Warner, EMI, Sony, Universal, Peer, uh, Imagen, BMG have each created their own repertoire-based licensing authorities for digital rights in Europe. So you've got to clear rights with all of them. Then sometimes, depending on the nature of your deal, you might actually have to go back to PRS, for example, to get digital rights in France for a publisher who has withdrawn their digital rights and granted the right to grant digital rights in France to PRS or to STIM, which has a similar basis for smaller independent publishers. So it's conceivable for one territory you'd have to do a dozen deals, which is a lot better than what it used to be in the US and for one of my clients where we have to go song by song. So um, it, it's challenging. It just have to plod through it and go through it. But what's happening is this pan-European concept is now emerging in South America as well. And there is at least one society in South America that wants to stand up and say, we're going to give you a pan-South American license if you want to. But then there are challenges within South America that we don't really have as badly as we do. As uh, 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 Challenges in South America are more extreme than those that used to be in Europe. For example, there's one society in South America where I was clearing rights for a client last year where we learned that the gross revenue received in this particular society in one year was $2 million, and they paid out 200000 So instead of the typical um, overhead cost of somewhere between 5 and 20% or 8 and 20% of the revenue, this company was doing, taking 90% of the revenue and you know, taking care of their people, going on trips, whatever they were doing. And then, of course, you move if you want to launch in a nut, that's South America. And then if you want to launch in Asia, it's also very different. The Asian societies pick up the phone and talk to each other all day long. So, so what did you get from them? What did you get from them? And there's no antitrust laws to affect that in Asia. So they talk to each other. If you've agreed to pay society A $10,000 and the population in that country is X, Without regard to the penetration of computers, internet access, and mobile devices, they will then take that, that number and apply it to their territory where there are more people and multiply it by a factor. And so, I mean, it gets wildly complicated. And then, of course, in that sense, but then, of course, there's China, which is something unto itself. So, um, Mark, I have a quick question okay. uh, point, uh, uh, for clarification. Are we talking about streaming services? Are we talking about um, on-demand streaming or non-interactive? 
streaming, yes. all of it. Yes. It's all bundled <laughs> up into one license that you would get from those societies. Well, it depends. Certain example. societies in Europe, there is a mechanical society and a performing rights society, so those are separate, so it adds another layer. But right. most okay. of them work within uh, from from one society for both the mechanical and the performing rights. Um, and, and we don't address the issue that sound exchange I'm not addressing the issue that sound exchange addressed, which was it authorized licenses for non-interactive um, services. Uh, if your service is interactive, sound exchange can't license you. You got to get those rights from the record company directly, but you still need publishing rights for the right to perform the composition. Just remember that we're only talking about the composition, or I'm only talking about the composition. So you can do it, but you need a Sherpa. It's not that easy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love it. We, ought, we often hear venture capitalists say that uh, the only kind of business model they'll support is one that doesn't involve licensing. That, uh, you know, digital, um, digital activities can be very efficient. You can often eliminate a lot of overhead you might have in other traditional businesses. Um, and they see that it's complicated and takes time. Um, I mean, how, how accomplishable is it? How bleak is it? Well, one of, one of our clients is actually seeking to license 60 territories at one time. Um, and that's been quite a burden. But we were talking about it before, that the notion of actually selecting, picking your battles in the beginning is a great way to figure out when you, whether your service is going to get traction. So there are societies where you can license the rights necessary um, from all the publishers in the world uh, with a single deal. And that's a territory where the publishing rights is something that you would consider before you launched in some of the other territories, which are more um, transaction heavy. So if you were to launch, for example, in Malaysia, where there's high penetration, high internet usage, high mobile phone usage, and there is demand for Anglo-American repertoire, you could make a deal with the Malaysian society and see how your service worked in Malaysia. Now, whether that transfers to France or it transfers to the US is a whole other story, but it's conceivable to do that. And that makes your job easier. You get to understand what the service is like. And that's the kind of stuff that we talk to our clients about. We try to make sure that they launch in the right place first so that it, it works. I think that's a really key element is being strategic in your licensing approach because each country is different, the cultures are different, the level of technological advancement and complexity differs country by country. So you really have to be sensitive to all of this in deciding uh, you know, how you prioritize your licensing approach. Some countries, they don't have the same antitrust concerns that we're used to here or the competition concerns in, in Europe so they can have uh, you'll find that all the all the interested parties will work together on licensing. In other countries, they don't. Um, you so also asked about rates. Yep. In Europe, the <coughs> rates are different to, uh, from territory to territory, from society to society. There are suggested rates. Uh, PRS's uh, suggested streaming rate, I believe, is 0. 0.00085 euro cents per stream, per play. But some of the majors are looking for 0. 0.003 euro cents per play. And um, obviously you're accounting if you're launching that kind of service, you're going to need to keep that in, in check and so, or, or line it up and pay properly. So the rates fluctuate. Um, and we were talking earlier before about uh, GAMA being uh, a very difficult society to negotiate with. They have actually set rates that are generally considered high um, and they really don't negotiate. And the other piece of this that becomes very important when you're considering your strategic moves is where you have to pay in advance and how much that advance is. I just negotiated a deal with a company that will remain unnamed where the principal actually sat down with the licensor and said, this is the advance we're going to give you, right? And the guy didn't answer. And when the proposal came back, it was 100% higher and the term was one quarter as long. So it was an astonishing development. And what the, they then said to us was, by the way, this proposal we sent to you, we still have to get pr approval from the guys up above, and they may make it harder. So it, it's wild. It's just very wild. But you, you need to have the patience and keep your eye on the ball. That's the way it goes. 
And when you talk about this race, a little clarification, I mean, if you're thinking about what is 0.003, I mean, it, it, in a streaming service, we're talking about like three cents per 100 listeners of a stream per play, if, it, if, it, if mm -hmm. it's a per play type rate, uh, a per penny, a penny per play rate, just to clarify. And th those are the minimums, <laughs> and then, you know, they'll also want additional percentages of revenue and things like that, but those are the minimum rates that'll be there. So, on the one hand, it's very challenging. On the other hand, you see iTunes opening this summer in, in a number of Asian countries. Um, they just opened in Brazil in the past year. Vivo, which obviously has audiovisual content, they just opened in Brazil, and, and they've opened several countries recently in Europe. Uh, Deezer, the French-based subscription uh, service, seems to be opening everywhere. I think they have 50 countries. Every, you know, They seem to want to be everywhere except the United States and Japan. Uh, two of the biggest markets. Um, so if you're determined to do it, it can be done, but it takes a lot of, of hard work and patience and, and de determination and, and checkbook. And just so for Deezer, this, it's really interesting. There was a recent development just this week where they raised $130 million, the majority of it from uh, Access Industries, which is the principal owner of Warner. So, and you should also know that on Deezer, about 90% of the subscribers there don't pay. It's a free service to them. Only about 10% of their subscribers actually pay. So it's a remarkable development in that sense. So we've been discussing this so far largely from the perspective of catalog-wide licensing, um, from the digital platform perspective as well as publishers and labels. Let's segue to um, how you would approach this if you're an artist or representing an artist. Um, Heidi, what's been uh, your experience approaching this on behalf of some of the successful artists that you represent? Um, we've mainly focused on territorial licensing, so we like to um, take each territory by territory, and this is the time-consuming part. You Sometimes one of my clients is more popular in France than they are in the UK, so we've done um, territory deals there in France, and what happens at that point is you are responsible for um, making sure the, the label, you're responsible for all the third-party royalties that are due. So if you have a, a producer or a third-party songwriter, they will pay royalties directly to the artist and they're responsible for that. So you want to make sure as the Sherpa for the artist that they've papered up this entire album. And that is where it's time consuming because, of course, the artist will be in the studio and bring in a friend and be like, oh, it's cool, they won't worry about it, but you are warranting and representing that this artist has signed up everybody on this album. So you have to keep on, on top of your client and make sure that they have a producer agreement, work for hire, songwriter agreements. And then once that's done, that you set them up with somebody who can account to them after they receive their monies from the label. So while it's time consuming, it's definitely doable and from the purpose of like strategizing for an artist, it does help them out. Um, sometimes what translates in the UK and France and then finally they build their popularity there, it comes back to the US and provides them the leverage to enter into better deals here. So we, we always hear about do-it-yourself artists. It sounds like if you're doing it yourself, there's a lot you have to know. Oh, definitely. And it's a lot of educating and advising and sometimes telling them this is, this is for the best and I'm sorry you have to take this agreement to your friend and have them sign it. Is it a different situation if you have um, an international licensee to handle, you know, another record label or distributor in a territory? Yes, um, sometimes you can sign up um, with different digital aggregators similar to what we have here, like TuneCore and CD Baby, like Believe Digital and Zimbalum, and they actually provide you with the opportunity, they take it to different digital retailers, and it's good to look at those separately from, if you're a US-based artist and you've signed up with TuneCore, to kind of break up the territory so that you can get the benefits of um, EU-based aggregators so you can reach the Deezers and the Vodafones that we don't reach here. And are the terms and conditions that you, you realize from international markets, how do they compare with what we see here in the US? Um, it definitely depends on your leverage. Uh, you try to, what we try to do is limit it to a, um, a one album deal so that you can have the opportunity after you build that fan base and gain the leverage to do an override worldwide deal. 
Now, Mark referred earlier to sound exchange and the reciprocal deals that they've been entering into. They recently did deals uh, within the past year in Germany, Japan, and, and Sweden for the collection of digital performance royalties. And I know that they previously had reciprocals in France, Spain, and Ireland. Um, Nita, can you talk a little about how those deals work and, and how that impacts the artist's ability to collect royalties? Sure. Um, so I almost want to backtrack just a little bit sure. and do that quick, quick um, sort of history of what's happening here. Um, so recording artists and owners of sound recording copyrights um, who are based in the United States have a real challenge being able to collect for the performance royalties that are really theoretically due to them um, from countries outside of the United States who are, doing, who are using um, their sound recordings. Uh, the public performance of sound recordings is, is a very limited right here in the United States and it's only um, available for, well, it's only, it only requires folks who are making non-interactive digital streams broadcast, if you will, but streams of, of commercially released sound recordings, are the, they're the only parties required to, um, to pay into a performance rights society, namely Sound Exchange United States. And me, excuse me. There's a lot of words. It's radio. Okay? It's internet, internet radio. Yeah, That's exactly. what you mean. Internet radio, satellite radio, and the audio-only stations on the end of the cable TV dial, and then a few other sorts of mobile and business establishment streaming services are, are the ones that are the only ones required to pay a public performance royalty to artists and labels in the United States. Um, it all started because there was a treaty back in, I think it was 1961 or something like that, called the Rome Convention. Um, that honored a public performance right in sound recordings, and the United States did not sign on to that treaty. Other countries did. United States did not. I think the list is in North Korea, China, Rwanda, and either Iran or Iraq. And the United States. <laughs> and the United States. So in a sense, we are in the axis of evil when it comes to protecting <laughs> artists and labor rights. Um, so, <laughs> there, there I said it. So, um, so basically, um, what it means is there are royalties being collected for U.S. artists and labels when there are broadcasts. So what we're talking about is terrestrial broadcasts, hotel and venues that, um, so terrestrial radio, television, hotel and venues, and other public performances of sound recordings. Those folks are still required in those countries to pay a royalty, and it gets collected by those neighboring right societies abroad, but it doesn't necessarily get paid out, and there's a huge challenge on that. Sound Exchange came in and said, okay, we at least have this limited digital public performance right, let's go ahead and do reciprocals to at least get like-for-like -like monies with those countries abroad. And so they have entered into those, and I want to say it's around 10. They're growing it and growing it um, country by country, going and doing private deals. Um, sometimes they're able to get a little bit more than just digital monies. It, it really is about sort of going forward to sound exchange and saying, hey, I actually have uh, a bunch of records in my catalog, if you're a label or an artist, saying I recorded these tracks in countries outside of the United States. I did this in France, I did this in Sweden. I did. And they may be able to make a claim on your behalf, uh, the artist or label's behalf, in order to um, free up something more than just digital streaming monies from those societies. They may be able to get terrestrial radio, television monies, et cetera. Um, however, it's been this huge challenging thing where really artist representatives, artist managers, and attorneys have to pay attention to how else can they free up these monies? Can they go directly to these foreign performance neighboring rights societies and, and get those monies? Um, it's important to sort of look into royalty agents, Vintage, International Royalty Rescue, Premier, Cobalt has started a neighboring rights division to their admin services. They'll take a cut of what you can get, of what the artists and label are getting, but they have relationships with these performance rights societies. They have been successful at getting U.S. artists and U.S. labels monies where there haven't been monies before. Um, can you go direct? There's a reservation of rights um, as to each country has a little bit of a different, has different rules, different policies on how they pay out. 
for the most part, if you have a member of the band that was born in one of these Rome Convention countries, basically outside the U.S. or Rwanda or China, um, you can you could potentially qualify to get royalties out of those societies. If you have an if you're a record label and you have offices, if you have residency in those countries, you p potentially could get royalties out of them. But it is again another thing where you need a Sherpa sometimes. Yeah. Um, and you need to find a way to get yourself within the principle of reciprocity, which drives this, that basically if one country doesn't pay for performances right. for, a, a, you know, a, a, you know if, if the Beatles aren't going to be receiving performance royalties from the U.S., then, you know, England's not going to be paying back to U.S. artists. Um, but they have through these reciprocal agreements. Right. But really, uh, for the most part, it's like for like monies. So in this day and age, everything's computerized. Uh, you know, it, uh, it, it could be shocking that when you get an accounting statement, everything isn't always on it. Sometimes there are mistakes. And now that artists have all this international potential, how do they track it? How do they monitor it? How do they make sure that they're really receiving their just due? Right. Well, you know, it's, it's amazing because the age-old problem had been, I think someone's ripping me off or my, ripping my client off, but how would I know? And then, you know, how... How would the client find the money to go and pursue those infringing parties? And are those performance rights societies abroad reporting properly into ASCAP or BMI or CSAC here domestically? Um, what is the, what are the, the international foreign broadcasters doing, the television broadcasters doing to make sure that every piece of music that they have on their television shows is being reported properly to their local performance rights organization. So um, there have been a handful of companies, but you know, I certainly work for one of them that was, um, that really created a different model and different methodology to solve those very problems. Um, TuneSat has this wonderful audio fingerprinting technology that allows creators and copyright owners of music to see their uses of music on television, on the web, in 14 countries, on TV, and then uh, all through the world on the web, um, which is allowing creators and copyright owners and those who represent them to have this tool in their toolbox to be able to go directly to their performance rights societies and say, here is actually where I actually got played on television broadcasts. Am I actually getting paid? Wait a minute, look at my last quarterly statement. Let's do a comparison here. Whoa, our slogan over at TNSET is we have found amongst our clients, which go from the indies to the majors, that up to 80% of music played on television is not being properly reported. That's huge. And think about the amount of royalties, the extra royalties that your client could be getting. Um, by just using a little digital tool in their toolbox called a tune set. Um, there's a, it, it is kind of in this day and age, in this environment, it is so important now to pay attention to those digital tools that really allow you to have that transparency, to see it. On the other side, there's the sync infringements, the obvious sync infringements. There's a bazillion folks out there who are, who have either licensed the piece of music and then gone outside the terms of the license by saying, okay, we gave it to you, we gave you a piece of music to use on a commercial campaign for one year for US only, and then it's gone onto the web and it's gone abroad into broadcasts that have been bundled in cable packages and sent over or sent out uh, down uh, into the Caribbean or into South America. There has been tons and tons of, in, uh, of licenses where where folks have gone outside the terms. And it's important to go back to them and be able to know to go back to them and say, I need another license fee. You don't necessarily have to go and file action, but you need to go and get another license fee. Um, so using a tool like TuneSat is just so incredibly uh, useful to be able to have eyes and ears to see. In almost real time, within the hour of the broadcast, you can see, oh, look, we got played 2,817 times on that commercial when we only gave them a thousand spots. And look, it's gotten played in France, Germany, UK when we only gave it to them for the US and go after them for that other license fee. Like that, there are other tools out there and there's SoundMouse and BMAT and I like to you know sort of mention that they're out there, but um, 
TuneSide is the one that's been created for the creators and copyright owners themselves. And, and, and it's, it's been a very useful tool to so many. They're making another stream of royalties where there hasn't been one. And that's all only on television. I mean, talking about the web, I mean, all the unauthorized, unauthorized uses of web, you can now easily see, click on it, get the email address and the uh, telephone number right there on your dashboard and send them an email saying cease and desist or pay and start having web licensing bring in a whole new stream for your clients where there wasn't one. Yeah, it's interesting because... And billable hours for attorneys. <laughs> so many uh, well, billable hours are always important. But the um, <laughs> rights owners, you know, many rights owners are very, you know, you know, just be riffed over what's happened in the last 10 years because of the effects of technology. But... Uh, you know, this is a use of technology really to protect rights holders and, and to generate additional revenues for them. Right. Um, with because, the you know, I just want to say, because it's important, I mean, we talk about licensing and we talk about rates and we talk, but it's so important to monetize and to make sure that the licensing out there is getting to the appropriate parties. It's really, what does it all matter if, it, if, if it's not being monetized and it's not getting to you? Right, and that's, that's one thing about, we, we didn't really get into it, but within international licensing, there's, if, you're, if you're insightful and you know where to look, there's a lot of places you can look to derive additional revenues, uh, you know, bring the monies home. Uh, with the amount of time we have left, I'd like to see, we have a lot of interesting and, and informed people in the audience whether we have questions. Um, Whitney. Just curious, uh, we're talking about when you were talking about the, the sort of publishing morass. Um, you know, it's it's it contrast that with say uh, licensing digital downloads, where where if you're licensing digital downloads from you know whoever it is or the majors or whoever, the the, the practice has evolved that the that the label will take care of the publisher, which of course is a great thing because as a service you have no idea even who owns stuff and where to go to and how to match that up against the catalog. And then recently I was reading that that Universal. Here in the states, has made a deal with um, with with uh, NMPA to handle the publishing payments with respect to its video content, uh, with its, like music videos and things like that. Just wondering if any of you guys are seeing that to be a trend at all, or whether it could be a trend, because it seems to me like that would be a tremendous change in the landscape and make things you know, make licensing quite a bit easier um, and get to you know still get everybody paid. Well, look, the, if I may, the, the sure. publishers um, fought the statutory change that you're talking about, which allowed the labels to pay the publishers when there was a download. And that's in the Copyright Act. And the publishers are furious about it. They have their own rights. They own them. They're grown-ups. They don't need the labels to pay them as and when they want. Nevertheless, you know, the, the, the NMPA settlement of $300 million is working. Money's coming through. What was in suspended accounts is no longer suspended as much. But the notion that I, I think that the publishers in the room, all three of you, would, would welcome the notion that they um, can license their own stuff directly. They don't want to wait for the labels to do that. So in terms of a trend, I don't see it as a trend at all. I see the trend moving back the other way so that owners license their own property and that they don't depend on any third party to do that. And in fact, if you think it all the way through, that's exactly what each of the individual societies in uh, Europe are doing that are, represented, uh, that are representing larger publishers. They are licensing their works directly. They're not passing through the societies directly. They're saying, no, we're going to license our stuff. This is our deal. This is how it goes. So the trend is actually going the other way. Follow up on that, um, Debbie Newman. There's clearly been a trend here in the U.S. for major publishers to, uh, withdrawing their rights for performance from the societies. Most recently, Sony ATV slash EMI Music Publishing, whatever you want to call it, is pulling all their rights out of ASCAP and BMI for digital perform for digital uh, streaming. And so, what you're talking about with CELAS and and those societies where the major publishers are doing it themselves in Europe is really the counterpart to, I don't know if it's chicken and egg, who's the chicken and who's the egg, but that's the direction that's sort of happening now in the U.S. with respect to the uh, performing societies and digital performances. Is that correct, would you say? Sure, because the Internet offers you the opportunity to account perfectly for every use, as, as Toonsat is demonstrating. So right. if you can control all of your uses, what do you need ASCAP to take 15% off the top for? And your money's come to you quicker, and you might have an opportunity to negotiate in advance. And 
is uh, payments are faster and quarterly payments and stuff like that. Well, we don't know right. yet, right? right? We don't know. Right. It's still emerging. But I mean, it's that's the theory, and the theory seems to make a whole lot of sense if you're of a large enough size to do that, which is why what's really interesting to me is the notion that both PRS and STEM in Europe are collecting, are aggregating smaller independent publishers to grant to them their pan-European digital rights so that you can get those. And it's just, it's interesting. I think it's nuts. So I don't think that's what the EU intended, but that's right. how it's evolved. I mean, this whole notion of the pan-European or the EU directive or whatever is not really what I think people thought it was going to be. It was going to be that you could go to one society and get all the rights you needed for Europe, but you still have to go to all the societies to get all the repertoire. So it's really not it's not lifted the burden for a digital music service at all. It just means there are different societies representing different catalog, but you still have to go to all of them. If you want the German content, you have to go to, uh, to, to GEMA, and if, you want, if you're launching in Sweden, you might have to get the French society and the Swedish society and the German society and the UK, and you might have to still go to all the societies. It's not any easier than it was I mean, three years less, ago. I mean, it's less, but it's, it's, uh, but it's still a lot. But it, at least you don't have to go song by song <laughs> in certain And certain the more situations. the EEC tries to motivate a streamlining of the licensing process, the more fragmented it seems to become. And the last effort, the, the proposed directive that was issued this summer, I think the approach is if they demand that um, collection societies spend a lot of money to update their accounting systems, if they are much more transparent, if they account sooner and they, and they computerize things that haven't been computerized and make them more efficient, this is something that's going to be something that not every society is going to be willing to take on, but only the societies that will, will be authorized to engage in pan-European. So they're hoping, again, to streamline it, but we'll see what the result is. Well, before, let me just answer another question. There are some South American societies that, and many content agreements from licensors, the societies say, we hereby grant you everything we've got. But they don't tell you what you got. And the majors don't grant the corrupt societies their rights. So you still, you, you stand up, you say, I got the right from such and such a country, which is a corrupt society, so I'm covered. But you're not, because you have to go back if you really want the major label stuff and make sure you have it. So it's, it, there are layers upon layers. Just, just a corollary question. The, what, can somebody answer what the status of the, I forget what the acronym is, but the equivalent of the ISRC for the sound recording, there is a... Uh, CWR? No, it's Common four... Works registry? It's well, four letters. Index, mm -hmm. Global Repertoire Database. What? ISMC, ISW, is something about the work. What the status of that is, because that's really, from a tracking standpoint, I mean, that's the ISRC is what allows the music to be matched to the metadata and tracked and then paid for. What is the, what's happening with that on the publishing side? Does anybody know? The ISW. Not, yes, Steve. <laughs> a pretty quick question. Um, there's a there's a big market growing in the sale of lyrics on mobile, and there's a number of you know relatively important companies that are entering that market. Um, what are the publishing implications of that? I mean, these are companies that want to have a clear answer. Um, they're deep pockets; they don't want to get sued. So, what do we? What as lawyers do we tell these companies they can do with regard to licensing those lyrics? Buy a license. <laughs> You know, it depends on whether, whether the rights are granted, right? So if you're a peer and you've granted the rights to your catalog to Hal Leonard and it includes the right for print to uh, includes di downloads of off mobile devices, you don't go to peer, you have to go to Hal Leonard, right? And that's just the U.S. And the societies don't collect print royalties. So you have to go publisher by publisher. Song by song. And if you're a digital jukebox company, you go song by song to clear. It's not easy, but it, it gets done. <laughs> well, a lot wait, of the... Wait, um, wait, I think yeah. Ralph wants to yeah, comment on Darryl? what I said. Isn't this a mechanical yeah. license for no. the... Ralph Peer is one of the pioneers in digital lyric licensing. Thank you. Just to say, on the lyric licensing, I think you have two ways, and Mark is absolutely correct. One way is to go to not... 15, but 15,000 publishers around the world because lyrics are not what we call graphic rights these days, are not part of the lights, licenses that have been granted to societies and they're not covered by compulsory licenses anywhere. 
but the other alternative, it seems to me, is that the established firms, such as Lurick Find and Grace Note, have aggregated a lot of these rights. And frankly, I think that there's a, a great deal of white label possibility in going to those companies and, because they have really done a lot of the work and bless them for it. Um, but of course, if you're out there and you're trying to do a crowdsourced lyrics situation, it doesn't cover you exactly. But you can get from companies uh, a list of the songs they own as opposed to from societies. That helps. Yes, uh, in the back there. My question goes back to Debbie's point about the uh, recent defection of Sony, ATV, and EMI from ASCAP and BMI. As a group that sits on the cutting edge, where do you guys see ultimately the impact is going to be on actual songwriters and composers as far as that extra money that is now not passing through those collection societies coming back directly to the publishers in your opinions do you find that that revenue is actually going to come back to the writers that's a great question because it's really the one that matters right yeah. uh, the one, only one that matters um, <laughs> in, in my opinion um, I read an article recently at one of the things that I subscribed to that talked about how the advances that Sony, ATV, EMI are going to extract from Apple's streaming service, the notion was that those advances would not ultimately end up in the artist's hands. Um, to me, that's a function of the strength of the contract and the strength of the artist. And I, and I, don't, I don't think that's right, but I will say that it is common practice among those aggregators in the form of major labels and publishers who secure an advance, they don't distribute that advance when they get it to their writers. They're not supposed to. They keep it, and if it's earned by the usage of that composition, then they pay it out. And that's how it works. So if you pay a million dollar advance and the usage value is 500,000, the 500,000 gets dispersed, but the other 500,000 stays at the company. And that goes top line, bottom line. But it's important, I think, for them for writers to put that pressure on their publishers, you know, if they can, if they can, if they, for those writers who have a bit of negotiating power there, to put pressure on an accurate reporting so it's not just this lump sum payment that came into the publisher and they say, well, we don't know how to attribute, so we're just going to put that into our account. If there's some reporting behind the deal, then they'll be able to accurately, you know, funnel each bit into each writer's account, and hopefully they've recouped and they can see a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Mark's right. I mean, I, th I think the forces of the market are moving towards efficiency and transparency because technology is better. You know, the, the the mechanism of licensing might might still be incredibly complicated, but the information you can extract on a usage by usage basis, once you get the information better. Is is you know I mean in, in our in our world where we've got I mean I think we were, the last time we worked out there was something like you know to do a deal with Merlin the equivalent would have having been having to do 300 individual transactions on a global basis and reporting individually and, and taking metadata individually and I think you know you, you, you know we find now on that efficiency point of view the labels are getting reported monthly there's no lags in reporting they know exactly what's happening on every platform a lot of them have access to dashboards that gives them a day-to-day -day view in terms of what's happening on that and if we can do that on the master side I don't think the limitation on the publisher's side is due to limitations of technology or anything in, in, anything inherently complex it's self-interest and I think you know we, we spoke about Gamer before if you want to go to Gamer and go to the car park of Gamer and look at the cars that the directors drive mm -hmm. that's going to answer a lot of your questions very quickly <laughs> what, is, yes. what is a service like Tusek cost yeah, um, and then good question. Actually, yesterday we just launched a 30-day free trial, so you can upload up to 100 tracks. If you have a client and you're wondering and you have their right to do it, upload up to 100 of their MP3s and you can start to see for free for 30 days what, where their music's getting played on TV and the web. After that, if you want to use it, it's, it's cheap. It starts, uh, the minimum price, it depends on how many territories you want to monitor, but it starts at 10 bucks for 10 tracks. So okay. if you want to pick your client's top 10 tracks that are out there that are pretty popular that you think might be getting ripped off, 10 bucks a month. It's a subscription service. And for the U.S., if you add 
you know, it, the price will just go up by a few dollars for each country that you add, and it's just a monthly thing, and you can kind of cancel any time if you're not seeing any detections after a while. If you've had a, a song on a commercial campaign, you want to add... Uh, and in fact, it's very important to actually really track the usage of that. Um, you can, you know, sort of cancel it at the end of that campaign if that commercial's no longer running and you don't need to. Okay, I have a... a Oh. Part two. Oh. Well, this gentleman's had to stand up the whole time, so okay. let's okay. try one last question. Thank you. Um, I'm going to try to ask a, a general question to something I, know I realize is a lot more complex, but uh, dealing with broadcast for, let's just say, like a phone app, digital broadcast, um, going back to the old spreadsheet, what uh, percentage, if you can give me a general percentage of what would be programmed into a cell of a spreadsheet as to a percentage on the dollar we expect to pay out in fees and royalties of the revenue that we'd make off of, uh, of music. The, the customary split is that the content providers get somewhere around 70% of your revenue. You have to build your business around 30% of your revenue. That's how it goes. The labels will typically look for around 50. The publishers are somewhere between 10 and 12. So now you're at 62. There's other content you need to provide. You're going to buy other digital licenses. If you look at between um, two-thirds and 70%, you're fine. The article on Spotify that came out just the other day talked about how it was a bad business model, noted that they, Spotify says they pay 70% of their revenue to, um, to content owners. Now that, is that the that doesn't include advances. There Pandora's. Wow. Now, does that, that include well. you guys were um, talking about the catchphrase neighboring music? Does that include just say if, if an artist is going to lay down fresh tracks, doing like a live concert? Is that the same uh, I mean, aspect? If you're selling tickets to it, let's you're talking, say? You're talking what? very gross dollars, okay. right? Okay. Right. If you Great. get into a specific thing, you're going to find it shift. But you can look at it that way and think about it. You are exploiting someone else's creativity. Right. It makes sense. Right. But live okay. concerts are not going to have the master recording involved. So, yeah, in a sense, you're getting rid of that component of the licensing. Well, you don't have to deal how, with the master side. How far would that drop, with, that percentage? Do, would that come it, really, it depends on, on the, the artist. Publishing, if, absolutely. if you're having you a live concert from a major worldwide superstar, they're going to ask for a, a huge check. They're going to ask for 50%. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so 50 really to 70 is kind of the swing there. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Um, the IAEL is very pleased to have been in involved in this with SF Music Tech and presenting this panel. Our goal has been to shed some light on the current issues and how they affect those interested in developing an international business. I hope you have found this to be engaging and informative. I'd like to thank our panelists and thank you all for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you.